Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And let's read into this, starting at the beginning, actually at the end of chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you who have ears to hear. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, again, we ask that you would help us now. Open the glory of your word to us, to our minds and to our hearts and to our wills, that we would love you, be changed by you, and serve you all our days with gladness. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we have come in our studies of the book of Romans to the sixth chapter, and while this is a new chapter, um, I hope you can see that it really is a continuation of thought from the end of chapter 5. And Paul is addressing the question of antinomianism in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is really a parenthesis, if you will, uh, a pause from his line of thinking at the end of chapter 5, to address a potential concern that he anticipated would come up related to um, this idea of superabounding grace. Paul had clearly said that all of us were in Adam, and because of our being in Adam, as the one who represented us, we received everything that Adam did. When he disobeyed the Lord, he fell into sin, and that sin nature, not just his individual sin, but his sin nature passed. It, 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 it spread into all of humanity from that time when Adam sinned. And so that's why the Scripture says in verse 12 of chapter 5 that we all sinned in Adam, past tense, at that point in time. And because of that sin entering into the world and spreading to all of us in Adam, Condemnation has come to us and death has come to us. Separation from God, spiritually, and physical death, a separation of body and spirit for which we were never created, and ultimately an eternal death for those who remain in that state under the wrath of God. But for all those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from that reign of death into the reign of life because we have received, we have taken hold of this abundance of grace in verse 17 of chapter 5 and of the gift of righteousness. 
we now have a new head, and his name is Jesus Christ. And everything that Christ did in terms of his obedience now becomes ours. Just as Adam's disobedience became our disobedience and our punishment, so Christ's obedience becomes our obedience and our righteousness and our life. And Paul says that that transformation was a transformation of superabounding grace. Superabounding grace. And as sin reigned in death, as bad as that was, even so this superabounding grace causes that we should reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the question would come from the unbeliever, well, what shall we say then? We have so much grace, why don't we just continue in it and let our sin run wild? Let's sin with abandon as much as we want because as we do that, aren't we simply putting the glory of God on display by showing his grace to cover all our sin? That's the question that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 6. And we saw last week his answer to that was an emphatic, absolutely not. Certainly not. Me, yenito in Greek, which means no with, with disgust that you would even ask that question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's his answer to the question. And so we, we spent some time last week considering, well, what does it mean that we died to sin? Past tense. Especially in the light of the fact that we still struggle with sin, don't we? As believers. And the answer that we came to last week in looking at the context in the scripture was that this death to sin was a death to the reign of sin, a death to the rule and to the authority and to the dominion of sin that it had over us, that we couldn't do anything but sin when we were in Adam. That was our nature. We were a bad tree and all we could produce was bad fruit. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul's answer is not just that it's impermissible. It's not permitted by God to continue living in that state, but it's actually impossible. If you have been born again and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, it's not possible for you to continue as the habitual pattern of your life, living in, practicing, and loving your sin. If you do, it shows that you've never actually been converted no matter what your profession of faith is. Now we get to verse 3 this morning, and Paul is going to expound on his answer in verse 2. And he's going to give us an explanation by way of baptism. And he's going to pose it as a, a question. In fact, you see how many questions he starts with. He poses a question in verse 1 of chapter 6. He answers that question with a question, a rhetorical question in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So now he brings in the, the concept of baptism as an explanation for what it means that we died to sin. And he starts by saying, do, do you not know? In the Greek it is, are you ignorant of this? In other words, this is something every Christian needs to know. What does it mean that we were baptized into Christ? Is he talking about a water baptism? There are many in 
the church today and in church history who have interpreted this verse and others in that light. That it is when we are baptized with water that we are baptized into Christ and united to Him in a spiritual way. That the physical ceremony somehow unites us spiritually to Christ. Is that what he's talking about here in verse 3? Well, the short answer is no, and I want to show you this morning why. The word that he uses is our first clue, baptized. That word means immersion. It means to be submersed. It's spoken of a ship that is sunk under the water, submersed into the ocean. That's what the word baptizo means, or baptize. And Paul, just to be extra clear, in the Greek, he adds the word, the preposition, into after baptized. So he says effectively, do you not know, are you ignorant of this, that as many of us as were immersed into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, as I was preparing for this message, I I found um, this historical uh, context on this particular word, baptism, that was so helpful for me, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. This uh, comes from the outline of biblical usage, and it's an insight as to how the Greeks would use the word baptizo and the word bapto, which just means dip, in the same sentence or the same idea. And so listen to this. This is a quote. The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo or baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander who lived about 200 B.C. It's a recipe for making pickles, and it's helpful because it uses both words, baptizo and bapto, immerse and dip. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, bapto, into boiling water, and then baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Both Verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first, bapto, is temporary. The second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. End quote. That is a wonderfully helpful insight as to how this word baptizo was understood. In other words, it is a submersing underneath or into something in a permanent state not a temporary dip and a removal. As many as were fully immersed into Christ in a permanent state were baptized into his death, is what he's saying. So it conveys the idea of being joined to Christ as becoming one with him, united with him, permanently placed into him. And as I said, there are those in the church who teach that this refers to water baptism, the ceremony. Uh, Church of Christ, for example, they teach something called baptismal regeneration, where they believe that being dipped in the water or baptized in the water actually causes regeneration in the individual. That is heresy, loved ones. That is not true. There are others like the Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Anglicans, 
the Lutherans who believe that this act of water baptism confers a special grace that can even create faith in an infant, even if it's an unrealized faith. But this idea that the ceremony, the ritual, somehow has a spiritual good that it actually causes is not what the Scripture is teaching here at all. So the question is, how were we joined to Christ? If we were immersed into Him, what was the mechanism that caused us to be immersed into Him? Because the tense is a passive aorist tense. We were baptized into Christ. Is this something that we do ourselves to join us to Christ? Or is it something that someone else can do for us, like a godfather who baptizes a child? Well, we see, first of all, that this word baptize means an immersion in a permanent state. Water baptism, does that accurately represent a permanent submersion? It does not. The water baptism ceremony is dunking and then raising up again. So that's the first clue that this is not what this text is talking about, a water baptism. But again, as I say, the tense of baptize is a, is a past tense. It's a passive. It's not something that we did ourselves. It's something that has been done for us or to us. And so the question is, well, who baptized us then into Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, which was our call to worship this morning, answers the question. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So the context of that 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians is the body of Christ. It's one body that has many members that make up the one body. There's a unity and a diversity within the body of Christ. Christ himself is the head. We are the members of that body. And the question is, how were we made members joined to the body? The members joined to the body. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. It's the Holy Spirit of God that baptizes us, that immerses us into Christ and causes us to drink into that Spirit, to be united to Him. So it's not the work of a person. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, who does this for us. Paul is not describing a water baptism, but a spiritual baptism, a permanent immersion into Christ that's done by the Spirit of God. So the word baptize, in its historical context, the tense, those two things should clarify the meaning right there. But then we also have the corroboration of Scripture, other Scripture that supports Scripture, like we just saw in 1 Corinthians 12, to come to a true and right meaning of the text. You have the same idea that's given at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, there's the physical ceremony, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There's the spiritual reality. What's he referring to? He's referring to Pentecost. He's referring to the day when he would pour out the Holy Spirit in profusion on all his people and they would be united to Christ in a permanent way 
by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uniting them to Christ and Christ to them. And that indwelling, permanent abiding of the Holy Spirit has been the pattern for all Christians ever since Pentecost. So when Paul says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, he's referring to every Christian. All of us who are truly Christians have been baptized into Christ by the Spirit of God. Now stop for just a moment and think and consider what we're talking about here. This is marvelous truth, brothers and sisters, about our salvation. See, God not only justifies us, as we've been laboring to show in chapters 3, 4, and 5, to declare us right legally in the sight of God. How? By faith in Christ, He has taken the sin that was our sin, and He's placed it on our Savior. And he's, he's taken the righteousness of Jesus, and He's placed it on our account. That was all legal paperwork to declare us right in the sight of God. He doesn't stop there. What would happen if he stopped there? What would happen if he only justified us? Wouldn't that be the equivalent of a a judge that pardons a criminal and then lets him go? What would the criminal do after being let go with a full pardon from the judge? Go commit more crimes. Why? Because the criminal's heart hasn't been changed. He's still a criminal at heart. He would continue in sin. That is the question that was posed in the first verse of chapter 6. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But see, God doesn't stop at our justification. He doesn't stop at just forgiving our sins and then letting us go. He places us into His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He unites us to Him by the Spirit of the living God and faith in Christ so that He now, and here's the key, transforms us to be like His Son, Jesus. This is our sanctification. This is step two in the chain of salvation, if you will. We have our justification being declared right with God. We have our sanctification being transformed to become like the Son of God. And then we have our glorification, ultimately, where our unredeemed sinful humanity will be finally redeemed and we will have perfect glorified bodies so that our spirit and our body are fully redeemed at the end. But this section of Scripture is dealing with sanctification. This doctrine of union with Christ is essential to Christianity. That means you cannot be a Christian without being united with Him. It's what it means to be a Christian. The cucumber is submerged in the pickling solution, and that's what transforms it to become something new. It's not a perfect example. Most pickles are sour. We're not to be sour. We're sweet. But you understand the idea. It's being submerged into Christ, which is what causes the transformation to occur. Just to be clear on this, It is possible to be a Christian without being water baptized because this is a work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the individual. God does this work. And then the command is to be water baptized. Why? Because it is an outward profession, a sign, something that shows, or perhaps more accurately, a seal, something that shows the reality that's already taken place in our hearts, that we have believed in Christ by faith. And because of that, 
we're submitting in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and being water baptized. So, if you haven't been water baptized, I would encourage you, <laughs> and you are a believer, be baptized. That's an act of obedience to Christ. But this matter of salvation is bound up in a spiritual baptism that we're talking about here this morning in verse 3. Here's another way you could look at verse 3. This verse deals with doctrine, not experience. It deals with what is objectively true outside of yourself and not with your subjective experience of the truth. It deals with your status and position in Christ, what the Lord has done for you by placing you into Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a wonderful preacher of um, really World War II era in London, said this, quote, if we were saved by our understanding and experience of the truth, well, then God help many of us, <laughs> end quote. And amen to that. Our, our salvation is not bound up in our understanding every aspect of the truth. This truth that we're understanding or coming to understand is progressively being revealed to us as we look to the Lord in his word, right? We're understanding more of the glories of our salvation, but the fact of what happened, happened because Christ caused us to be born again. He saved us at the cross, and then he brings that salvation to our experience through the application and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by faith, which links us to that salvation event. Hmm. So this understanding of spiritual baptism is really what sheds light on this text this morning and on several other texts in Scripture that deal with baptism. Let me just give you a couple of examples here now that you have this mindset Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Paul says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here we have a link between faith and baptism, right? Those of you who are... Um, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and those who are baptized into Christ are the ones who are sons of God through faith in Christ. There's a believing in Christ that links us to a baptism. Is he talking about water baptism? No, that doesn't make any sense. He's talking about those who have believed in Christ, have been immersed into Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. And those who have put on Christ means that they have put him on like clothing. That's really the imagery. They have wrapped Christ around themselves. This is another picture of immersion because he is our righteousness, right? We're trusting him for his righteousness, not our own. His righteousness is that robe that we wrap around ourselves. It covers us completely. It also refers to our new identity that we have in Christ. If we are wrapped in the righteous robe of Christ, when the Lord looks at us, what does he see? He sees the glory of his son, the righteousness of his son. Our identity is now bound up in him. It's no longer our identity apart from him. We have a new identity in Christ. So he is our justification, that is, he is our robe of righteousness that we put on, and he is also our sanctification. He's our new identity and our new nature that is now in him. Let me give you another example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, and just picking up on this thought that Peter 
is laying out. He says, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. And then in parentheses, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a puzzling text for a lot of people. They struggle with it because um, it's talking about baptism. It's talking about Noah and the ark. And you're trying to make sense of what, what he's trying to teach here. Well, he, he uses the word antitype, which is not a word that we commonly use in English today. But antitype is a word that means the reality that a type or a sign would point to. So types and antitypes are always in pairs. Um, this example, in this example, the type is the ark. The ark. He says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. So Noah's ark was the type. It was a sign that pointed to something else. And what was that antitype, the reality that it was pointing to? Well, it was to baptism. Baptism, an immersion. In other words, the type was the eight souls were immersed into the ark and were saved, how? From the judgment of God, right? The ark is what preserved them from the floods that came down and destroyed everyone else. What's the reality? What's the antitype? All who have immersed themselves into Christ, who is the ark of God, by faith in his death and resurrection, will be saved from the ultimate judgment of God. That's the purpose of the ark. That's the true reality that the type points to. And that is a picture of baptism, an immersion. Just as those eight souls were immersed in the ark, completely enveloped in the ark, which was their safety, so we are completely enveloped in Christ, who is our safety from the judgment to come. And because Peter wants to be extra clear that he's not talking about water baptism, he says, <clears throat> not the removal of filth of the flesh, I'm not talking about an external washing of the body that somehow removes the dirt from you. But he's talking about the kind of washing that results in the answer of a good conscience toward God. What kind of a washing is that? That's an internal washing of the soul and of the mind and of the conscience that only God can do by his spirit. That's immersion into Christ. So the first thing that it means that we were baptized into Christ is this, that we were permanently immersed into Christ spiritually by the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Christ's death and resurrection for us. That's the first thing that it means that we were baptized into Christ this morning. And in terms of outline, if you're taking notes, that's, that's really the first point that I want to leave with you. We're going to answer or seek to answer this question what does it mean that we were baptized into Christ? And that's the first answer. And then I want to give you three effects of this union with Christ that Paul lays out in our text. So the first answer is to what it means that we were baptized into Christ is we were permanently immersed in him by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ's death and resurrection for us. The second thing it means is that we were joined to all of Christ all of him and his experience, not just parts of him. Why is that important? 1 Corinthians 1.30, 
he, referring to Christ, is made to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, final salvation. In other words, Christ has not only made to us our righteousness. He's not just the justifying agent in our lives who cleanses us of our sin and leaves us alone, but he also sanctifies us and will be our final redemption when he glorifies us. Do you see that this is a package? Christ's salvation is a package. In other words, you cannot take Jesus as your Savior, your insurance, so that you're not ultimately sent to hell without him also being your Lord, the one who leads and governs your life. It's a package deal. These are truths that, again, we're progressively learning, but they are already true of us in Christ. Remember, this whole package of Adam is what we first received. His disobedience, his condemnation, his death. Now we're talking about the package that we receive in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ belongs to us. Praise the Lord. Don't you know, he says. Are you ignorant of this? This is a a key doctrine for every one of us in Christ to know. Because this, brothers and sisters, is something that is going to transform you. As you look into this doctrine, as you meditate on it in your heart, he is going to transform you to be more like his son as you contemplate these things. We were listening to a a talk on the Puritans this morning, and what a wonderful analogy was given with regard to meditating, the lost art of meditating on the word of God. And the example was that of a, a bee, a honeybee, that comes to the flower And that bee doesn't just touch the flower in order to extract the nectar, does it? The bee stays on the flower. It abides on the flower in order that it might extract all the nutrients from that flower. And so it is in the Christian life. We need to abide and stay in Christ. In other words, meditate on his word. Be like the honeybee that stays in order to extract the sweetness of that flower. And enjoy him. And that is what changes us. As that nutriment comes into our life, we are changed to be like him. That's part of being in union with Christ. I want you to notice in the text that he repeats that it's knowledge that is the key to our sanctification. Look in verse 3. Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Look at verse 6. Knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Knowing, knowing, knowing. Spiritual knowledge is what he's talking about. That is the agent of transformation in our sanctification. Now, having laid down this general principle of baptism as the explanation for how we died to sin in verse 2, Now he's going to show us some of the effects of our union with Christ. What does it mean that you've now been baptized into him? You've been immersed into him. And he has three things for us. The first is, here's the first effect on our union with Christ. It's that we were baptized into his death. Baptized into his death. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death The Greek literally says that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death were baptized. 
It's a strong emphasis there on being placed into his death. So what does that mean? Well, it means this, that when Christ died on the cross for us, we died with him there on the cross. And you say, I don't understand that. That's a, that's a strange kind of mind-bending concept. I wasn't even alive when Christ was on the earth. How is it that I died with him on the cross? Well, we're talking about from God's point of view. This is what matters. This is what he's bringing our thinking into line with as we learn the scripture. We don't think like God thinks. His thoughts are way higher than our thoughts, just like his ways are higher than our ways. And so he wants to teach us what it means to be united to Christ. And here's the first thing. We are immersed into his death. When he died on the cross, he died for us. He died in our place. So it's like we were standing there with him. He was our substitute. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. It wasn't for his own. He didn't have any sin of his own. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. So when he was dying on that cross, it was in your place and in mine, taking that punishment that we deserve to the fullest extent and paying the price so that there is no longer any condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. His crucifixion, in other words, was our crucifixion. That's the idea. He's going to say that, in fact, in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. We were crucified with him. Tough to understand, right? This is the mind of Christ, though, we're talking about. Was imputation hard to understand? It was for me, right? That... The Lord should count me, reckon me, consider me righteous because of the righteousness of his son? Wow. Well, here we are with another difficult but, but true and wonderful truth that he wants us to understand. We were joined to Christ, united with him in his death first. And you say, when were we joined to Christ? Well, in one sense, it was at the cross, right? Like we're saying, when he died, we died. But in another sense, doesn't Scripture say that it's when we believed? Galatians 3.27, in fact, said that, right? Galatians 3.27 um, said it was by faith. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so there's an element of faith that baptizes us into Christ, joins us to Christ. Well, the Scripture also teaches that Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world in Revelation 13. Uh, slain even before time began and before there was a world? How is that in the mind of God? It was planned, decreed, and purposed in the mind of God, so it had already come to pass effectively. Everything God purposes and plans, He brings to pass with 100% certainty. So he, the Father, planned it. The Son was sent to earth and humbled himself in order to obey the will of the Father and execute the, the plan of the Father perfectly. And then the Spirit of God now applies that salvation that was achieved at the cross to us now in space and time to our hearts. 
says salvation by the triune God. Amazing. So the first effect of our union is we were baptized into his death. Here's the second effect of our union with Christ. Look at verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Buried with him. There's the second effect of our union with Christ. We were buried with him. Aorist passive. Something that happened to us. We were interred is the word in the Greek. Literally covered over in the ground with Christ. What does this mean? Well, burial is always the final proof of death, isn't it? It's the final proof of death. In other words, you, brother and sister, are not the same person you used to be. That old you is dead, according to God. Dead, buried, covered, no longer living. He's been crucified with Christ. He is not coming back. Now, this helps us to understand how Paul can say something like this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who live any longer. Why? Because that old man, Paul's old man, was crucified with Christ. He now has a new identity, a new I, which is what? Christ living in him, in union with him, immersed into Christ. He doesn't know where Paul begins and Christ ends. And so it is with us. That old man is gone. He's buried. Again, back to we died to sin. That old ruling influence in our life that kept us under its thumb, so to speak. We weren't able to get out from under it. We were imprisoned by sin. That nature, he's saying, that has died with Christ. You see how baptism by immersion and not by sprinkling really fits the picture of what he's talking about here in the spiritual truth? Fully immersed into Christ, into his death, into his burial, covered over, permanently abiding in that state with our old man. But God's purpose in uniting us to Christ was never to leave us in the grave. Thank God. It was never to leave us in the grave. Psalm 16, verse 10, which is quoted by Peter, the Apostle Peter in Acts 2. He says this, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. That was spoken originally by David, and it was not spoken concerning himself. He was speaking it concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ to come. God would not allow his Holy One, the Son of God, to see corruption. When he went into the ground, into the tomb, he was not allowed to stay there to decompose. God raised him from the dead with power. He is the Holy One of God. And so all of us now, as we think about our immersion into Christ, does that not become true of us also? we are not going to be allowed to see corruption because, well, first of all, he has raised us from the dead. Spiritually, we're alive. We talked about when we were dead in transgressions and sins. We were unbelieving in the Lord Jesus Christ. We had no appetite for spiritual things. We were darkened and alienated in our minds toward God, enemies of his. 
He has raised us from the dead spiritually so that now we see him. We believe. We are believing. And we love him. But also in the sense that we will one day be raised from the dead bodily. He will not allow us to see corruption. He will raise us from the dead to a life incorruptible, full of glory. It is coming. So, we were buried with him. That's the second effect of our union with Christ. First, we were baptized into his death. Secondly, we were buried with him. The old man is gone. Thirdly, we were were raised with him. Look at verse 4 again. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, follow the logic in Paul's argument here. Here's the pattern. If the pattern is that Christ was buried and we were buried with him, then what's the pattern if Christ was raised? Well, here's what he says. Just as Christ was raised, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You would have thought he would have said, we also are raised. But what he says is, even so we should walk in newness of life. What's the implication? Those who are alive spiritually now are walking in newness of life. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. To be raised with him spiritually means that we are now walking with him in newness of life. So here is the third effect of our union. It's resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. That's how we've been immersed into Christ spiritually. Now, what does it mean that we have been, excuse me, that there's a detail here that I wanted to point out to you. Paul says this, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the glory of the Father, what does that mean? Well, in this context, it means by his power. By his power. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says to the Corinthian church, for though he, referring to Christ, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. That's a reference to his resurrection, his resurrection life. It is by the power of God. Think about Jesus when he went to the tomb of Lazarus and he spoke to Martha and he said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God, what's he referring to? The power of God that he was going to put on display by calling Lazarus forth from the tomb to life again. Romans 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's power. In fact, it's the same power, that resurrection power, that was required to raise Jesus from the dead, that was required to raise you and me from the dead spiritually. Incredible power. We were not going to come to life without that power at work in us. That's the glory of the Father that raised Christ and that is now at work in us, brothers and sisters. And so he says we should walk. What does that mean? When you read walking in Scripture, it's speaking of manner of life. It's speaking of your pattern, your habit, what you do regularly. 
And he says that you should walk in newness of life. Kenotis is the Greek word. It means a new kind of life. In other words, you're no longer in the old realm. You're not in Adam anymore. You're not in that dark realm where sin reigned. You're now in a new realm. You are in a new state. This newness of life speaks about a new principle of life in you and in me. It's a reference to our regeneration, right? When we were born the first time, that was our generation. That's our genesis, our beginning. Our regenesis is our regeneration in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36 this is a picture of the new covenant given in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. The Lord speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Wow. That's the new covenant. He's going to take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He's going to give us, in other words, he's going to take out that unfeeling, hardened heart, which is a heart of unbelief. That's what a hard heart is. That was the picture of circumcision. Circumcision, as you might remember from chapter 2 of Romans, was an outward sign of the need for a cutting away of that hardness of the heart. That was the whole reason for it. That the people would be believing I will give you a new heart. Heart of stone comes out. He gives us a new heart of flesh, a tender heart that feels toward God. And I will give you a new spirit. I put a new spirit, lowercase s, new spirit in you. And I will put my spirit, capital S, spirit in you. This is the transformation we're talking about. It starts with a new birth, a regeneration, because we are united to Christ. And then this part that some people really have a hard time with. And God speaking, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Some people hear that and they say, well, that sounds forceful, right? Why does God have to cause me to do something against my will? And this is really the point in when Calvin has his five points, the T-U-L-I-P, that I, irresistible grace, that's what this addresses, is is it something that we don't want for the Lord to cause us to walk in His ways? Brother Roy this morning read from Psalm 119, and the psalmist says this in verse 35, Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Make me, cause me to walk in the path. Why would he say something like that? Because he delights now in the law of God. Because God has given him a new heart. He's taken out the heart of stone. He's given him a new heart. And remember, when you hear heart in Scripture, it refers to the real you, the inner you. That refers to your thought life. It refers to your affections. And it refers to your will. It's the real you inside of your body. It's only when we are united to Christ and we are given this new heart that we are given new affections for Christ so that now we can say with the psalmist, make me walk in your commandments for I delight in them. I truly do. I want you, Lord, to make me walk. I am a sinner and I have a hard time. Help me. If you don't do it, it's not happening. He honors that. That's a good prayer. 
brothers and sisters, we're describing what is called newness of life. Newness of life and walking in it as a pattern now of life. The old you is gone. The new you is a spiritually alive person who has been immersed into Christ. You are in him and he is in you. He dwells in you. And now you have new inclinations in your heart. What are your longings now? Well, I'll tell you this. The longing of the Christian is a longing for holiness. It's a longing to please God because we love God, right? What is the constraining influence in our lives more than any other? Is it not this? The love of Christ constrains us or compels us. It it squeezes us. Those are the rails, the guardrails that God has put around our hearts that we might love him, that we might be inclined toward him and ask him that he would incline us more and more toward him. And people say, but I still struggle with sin. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I've really died to sin? Um, The commentator William Hendrickson was very helpful, I thought, in in this way. This insight he gives is, is so good. Listen to this. He says, quote, there is a vast difference between committing a sin or committing particular sins and constantly living in and delighting in sin, end quote. All the difference in the world between committing sins and hating it and feeling convicted about it and being driven to your knees to repent of it And somebody who continually lives in sin as the pattern and habit of their life. Why? Because they love it. They actually delight in it, which is the reason why they live in it. That's not the heart of the Christian that's been converted. We now have holy longings, even though we do sin. But when we sin, we hate it, don't we? We ask that God would help us and be merciful to us and show us his repentance so that we can find again the joy of the Lord as David when he repented. So what does it mean to walk in newness of life? Well, it means that we have new hearts, first of all. We have a new nature. We want God's thoughts to be our thoughts. We have new affections and longings in our hearts and souls, even even if they're small. That's okay. The Lord can stoke that fire and make it grow as you look to him. But small is fine as long as they're genuine, a genuine longing. And he gives us a new will to serve God and no longer serve myself. That's key. See, when I serve myself and I follow my old patterns, I'm now convicted and feel miserable until I repent. And you will too. Well, Paul is going to give us some very practical suggestions, some do's and don'ts um, for what it means to walk in this newness of life. But let me just leave you with the principle First, it's this. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31. In other words, because of our immersion with Christ, we are now oriented away from ourselves fundamentally and we're oriented toward God. He is our master and we now want to do what pleases him and no longer ourselves. Not perfectly, but again, as the pattern of our lives. let everything that you do be to the glory of God. That's the principle. It's no longer a life that's dedicated to sin, but it's dedicated to God's glory. Does that seem too broad? 
Does that seem too abstract to just give you a principle like that and say that's what's going to govern you? Well, here's the same question. What, what is it that keeps us from continuing in sin and living lawlessly? What, what, what is it that's going to keep us from continuing in that old way of life? There's only two possible answers to how to address a question like that. The first answer is you apply external rules to force an outcome on somebody, right, or myself. That's called legalism. Change that starts from outside in. It's not effective. It doesn't work. The unbelieving Jews who were crying foul at Paul's teaching of grace and of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that was the issue. You're just going to create a bunch of lawless people who are going to go out and sin with impunity. Something has to govern them, right? We need rules. We need laws. The other answer is an internal principle of the Holy Spirit governing us because He is at work to transform our lives. That's kind of abstract, right? That's a little harder for the fleshly, carnal-minded person to understand. They don't understand it. Here's what he's going to say for practical instruction. Verse 12 of Romans 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its Obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. <clears throat> do this. Don't do that. There's the commands. But we have to understand the reality of what's true of us first in order that when the command is given, we can do it. This is not possible to do these things. This is impossible in the strength of the flesh if the work of the Holy Spirit is not abiding in you. So, this really gets us back to the reason that he was talking about the superabundant grace that is at work toward us. At the end of chapter 5, was this grace given that we should continue in sin and that grace would abound? He says, may it never be. That's an abhorrent thought. His grace was never given that we would continue giving ourselves to sin as the pattern of our lives like we used to, but to enable us to give ourselves to God as the new pattern of our lives. So what does it mean, brothers and sisters, that we were baptized into Christ? Well, it means two things. It means that we were permanently immersed into him spiritually by the operation of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ's death and resurrection for us. And it means that we were joined to all of him and to all his experience. When he died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Those are the effects of this superabounding grace toward us in Christ. We have been declared holy legally. That's our justification. He is now making us holy by his Holy Spirit. That's sanctification. May it be an increasing work in all of our lives as we continue to look to him, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning in your word. Lord, we can affirm with the psalmist, make me walk in your way and your commandments for I delight in them. Lord, we rejoice in you that you have changed the inclinations of our hearts. 
You've given us new hearts, in fact, that we would love you in righteousness, love holiness, and pursue it, that that would be the deepest longing of our heart, and that, Lord, when we do sin, thank God that you treat us as a father who chastens, who corrects, who spanks his children. You don't allow us to go on sinning without feeling conviction and without granting us the gift, truly the gift of repentance, that we might turn away from ourselves and our our old selves, those old patterns of life that we used to live in. Father, thank you for this newness of life that you've called us to as we've been united with Christ, that we are now living the very life of Christ by the power of the Spirit of God that he is now governing us and leading us into all truth. Wow, Lord, help us. You know that um, we are weak in the flesh. But Father, you have given us an infinite resource in yourself and your call is that we look to you and live in the fullest sense of the word, that we would experience the abundant life that Christ came for and the joy, his very joy, that it would be complete and fulfilled in us as we abide in him, as the branch abides in the vine and his life courses through us. Lord, help us. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you that you have rescued each of our souls. You have paid the price of the penalty for all of our sins and you have saved us also from that dominating power of sin in our lives. You've released us that we might now obey you. Help us to do that this week, Lord, as we look to you and as we encourage each other and stir each other up in these things. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.